Capital Market Insights from ICMA. Good day, everybody. My name is uh, Arthur Carabia. I'm a director at ICMA, and I'm joined by uh, Bob Parker, chairman of uh, our Asset Management and Investor Council for our regular monthly market update podcast. Bob, I hope uh, you had a good summer, and thanks for being uh, with us today. And if I may, I'd like to start with uh, a general question and ask you, what did you observe on the cross-market during the, this month of August, which is uh, always a bit peculiar because of lack of investor? Well, I think a, a number of themes. You know, the first theme uh, is that volatility has increased slightly in government bond markets. So if we look at the 10-year U.S. Treasury yield, that continued its rally until a few weeks ago. And that is the sort of second quarter, July and August rally, where if we go back to March of this year, you know, 10-year U.S. Treasury yields were up at over 1.7%. And then at one stage recently, we have come down as less than 1.15%. Subsequently, just in the last one week to 10 days, the yields have risen back up again over 1.3%. So we've seen, I think, you know, logically an increase in volatility. And I think with some evidence that that rally really since March in yields has now come to an end. And obviously, one, one factor has been, which we can talk about later in this podcast, one factor has been a lot of investor discussion as to what the Federal Reserve will do with tapering its quantitative easing program. So changing expectations on tapering have driven bond market movements. If we look elsewhere, we've seen some divergence in other government bond markets from the US Treasury market. So European yields have remained very low indeed. At one stage, 10-year bonds were down at minus 50 basis points. Uh, there seems to be quite a lot of resistance in the market in 10-year bond yields at around minus 50 basis points. But you know, clearly, over the last three to four months, we've seen that quite major move in European yields downwards. And within Europe, spreads have remained relatively tight. So although there has been recently some volatility in Italian bond yields, overall, spreads remain tight in Europe and conditions less volatile. Um, and I think, you know, whereas investors are focusing on the Fed tapering program, the message from the ECB, at least so far, has been that their asset purchases will continue or possibly even increase from the recent level of 80 billion. So, you know, we have a somewhat easier stance from the ECB. Uh, very little volatility in Japanese yields, where I think also we've seen very little volatility has actually been in credit markets. And uh, if we look at investment grade, the market CDX, five-year North American spread, you know, that has been very stable between 47 and 50 basis points. And, you know, we had earlier in August a minor sell-off uh, in the high-yield market, but that has now stabilized and spreads have come in. Where we've seen quite major movements in fixed income markets actually has been in certain emerging debt markets. And, you know, to cite, you know, one example, Brazilian 10-year government bond yields went way above 10%. We have seen quite a bit of upward pressure, likewise, you know, in markets such as Russia and Indonesia. So uh, emerging local currency yields have been under some upward pressure. And I think that just generally reflects uh, inflationary pressures in emerging economies and the response 
uh, of a number of central banks in the emerging world, which have raised interest rates, most notably Brazil and Russia. And you know, one should mention guidance from the South African Central Bank has been that they will raise rates in the near future. So that's the fixed income uh, world. If we look at the equity world, I think there is one sort of very clear theme, which is that whereas European and US equity markets have advanced, that has not been the case in China. And Chinese markets have significantly underperformed other markets. And it's not just China versus the US or Europe, but also relative to a number of other Asian markets. So, for example, if you look at year to date, the CSI 300, which, of course, is the more tech sensitive market in China relative to the Indian market, the Sensex, uh, you know, year to date, um, you know, that has had an underperformance of close to 25 percent. So that's been the big theme, I think, in equity markets. Equity markets continue to do well in Europe, US, in India, a number of other markets in emerging markets, such as uh, Central and Eastern Europe. But that Chinese underperformance has been really quite significant. We've also seen some selling pressure on the Japanese market with the Nikkei which at one stage was trading some months ago above 30,000, now is now down below 28,000. So a very, very divergent picture in equity markets. In other asset classes, uh, volatility in foreign exchange has remained low. There has, however, been somewhat of an upward bias in the US dollar, with the US dollar continuously trying to break through 1.17 against the euro. Where we have seen some selling pressure, which has now eased, actually has been in currencies linked to commodities. So, you know, with the recent setback in a number of commodity markets, whether it be copper, whether it be iron ore, we've also seen downward pressure on oil prices on trend. That has affected currencies like the Canadian dollar, which at one stage was testing 1.2, and then subsequently reversed to 1.28. And likewise, the Australian dollar under selling pressure. As we talk, however, that pressure now seems to have stabilized. And, you know, the selling pressure that we saw in commodities in early August has likewise stabilized. And to give you an example of that, uh, if we look at energy markets, Brent, uh, which was trading below $70 a barrel is now back up above $70 per barrel. But it does seem now to be firmly in a trading range of 65 to 75. And you know, speculation that oil prices would break through $80 a barrel, I think um, expectations have changed quite dramatically there. So that's an overview of what's been happening in markets. Thank you, Bob. And you, you started to allude and hint about potential divergence of central bank policies. And you mentioned the Fed trying to send a message that uh, tapering, it's on its way, whereas the ECB uh, seemed to, to take a different stance. Can you explain a bit how come we've, if we were now already so, so soon after the pandemic into a diverging situation between uh, what's going on in Europe and in the US when it comes to, to inflation, but also maybe growth? 
Absolutely. Well, I think the first point to make is that this podcast comes with one big caveat because we are recording it at exactly the same time that Jay Powell is giving his speech at the Jackson Hole Conference, which obviously, you know, that's an online conference. They're not getting together at Jackson Hole in, in Wyoming as they have in previous years. But I think you know, what we will see from the Federal Reserve, whether it's Jay Powell's speech today or you know the next fed meeting in september which is in uh, towards the end of september i think you will get a very clear statement from the fed that yes they want to avoid what is called a taper tantrum no they don't want to aggressively reverse monetary policy and they will move very cautiously and very slowly but having said that i think there is a high probability that they will reduce the amount of asset purchases in the fourth quarter of this year. And I think you know, one factor, obviously, is uh, what they do in the mortgage-backed securities market. And just to remind everybody, they are currently purchasing 80 billion US dollars per month of US treasuries, and they are purchasing 40 billion a month in mortgage-backed securities. And there is quite rightly quite a bit of criticism of the volume of mortgage-backed securities purchases given the evident overheating in the US real estate market. And you know, if you look at data from Freddie Mac or Fannie Mae, or you know, the case Schiller house price index in the US, house prices year on year you know, are rising at you know, close to 15%. So you know, if one looks at where there is overheating, the real estate market does stand out, not just in the US, but obviously in a number of other economies as well. So I think that a reduction in mortgage bank securities purchases, you know, possibly from 40 billion a month down to 20 billion a month by the end of this year is highly likely. And, you know, given the growth numbers and the inflation numbers in the States, I think a gradual reduction in US treasuries, those purchases may come down from 80 billion a month, perhaps to 70 billion a month by year end, and then down progressively, perhaps to 50 billion a month by the end of March 2022. And you know, although we've recently seen some weakness in selected US data, and I'm thinking particularly of uh, the recent retail sales numbers and the consumer confidence numbers, where we've seen a setback, you know, the Fed is still sticking to its target of 7% growth for 2021. And there's a high probability that they will increase their growth forecast for 2022 to probably more than 4%. Uh, and at the moment, they're forecasting 3.3%, which I think is, given the monetary and fiscal stimulus to the economy, that forecast for 2022 is too low. I think the Fed also recognises that inflation has risen more than expected. Year on year, consumer prices have risen by 5.4%. And although in the last monthly figures, there is evidence that inflation pressure is starting to ease off. Having said that, I think a reasonable forecast is that inflation in the fourth quarter of this year will probably still be three and a half to four percent year on year. And in the first half of next year, somewhere close to three percent. So inflation is going to be higher and for longer. So the case for the Fed tapering, I think, is quite powerful. A number of Fed governors in recent days have come out with statements saying that uh, you know, tapering should start. And I think there has been a clear shift 
in the consensus amongst investors that the Fed will start tapering in the fourth quarter of this year. If we'd had this discussion, let's say three or four months ago, the investor consensus then was that tapering would start only sort of around the middle of next year. So those expectations have been brought forward. And I think that that certainly is justified. The one caveat, of course, is to what extent the US economy is slowing because of the increase in COVID cases. And at the moment, yes, the COVID cases are serious, but given the number of vaccinations in the States and the US vaccination program has been successful, Yes, the cases are going up, but I think it's fair to say that the impact on the US economy will be relatively minor and will not stop the Fed moving ahead with this gradual tapering program. Now, in contrast, in Europe, uh, I think the first comment to make on Europe is that we do seem to have some divergence within the members of uh, the ECB governing council. And, you know, we've had a number of statements from, for example, uh, the Bundesbank, the Dutch Central Bank, the Belgian Central Bank, showing some disquiet as the pace of uh, ECB purchases. Having said that, Mrs. Lagarde, I think, is still very insistent, and there is a majority on the board of the ECB, that the inflation numbers are still lagging, and therefore, that at least over the next month or two, those purchases by the ECB should continue at 80 billion a month. So I think that, you know, the ECB certainly until I would say late 2021 is going to continue with its easing in monetary policy. And I think it wants firm evidence that inflation is very much on an uptrend before it starts to reverse its asset purchases. Having said that, I think it's fair to say that in the fourth quarter of this year that we will actually get eurozone inflation well above the new symmetrical 2% target. It may ease off in the first half of next year, as I think uh, US inflation will ease off. But I think that uh, the ECB may be forced to review its current easy monetary strategy towards the end of this year. But certainly for the next two to three months, we have this divergence between the Fed and the ECB. Amongst other central banks, I think just a couple of points to note. First of all, the message from the Bank of England is that there is a high probability that rates will be increased in the first half of next year. The Bank of England does seem to be concerned about the rise in UK inflation, which has not really happened yet, but the Bank of England are forecasting 4% inflation towards the end of 2021. And, you know, their quantitative easing program, um, I think, will be gradually reduced over the next three to six months. The Bank of Japan basically are on hold. They've left interest rates unchanged. Their target for the 10-year JGB is still zero yield. But they have stopped intervening in the Japanese equity markets, so they're no longer purchasing Japanese ETFs. They are increasing lending to small and mid-cap companies. But, you know, the expansion of uh, monetary policy, I think, has certainly slowed down in Japan. Now, one country which is very different is China. And the People's Bank of China in recent weeks have been injecting liquidity into the Chinese economy. And I think concerns about supply chain bottlenecks, concerns about renewed cases of uh, COVID in China, and you know, concerns over the pace to which the Chinese economy may be slowing down.
So we've got a very interesting situation whereby we do have divergence amongst the major central banks. Uh, and that obviously has implications for markets over the next month or two. Maybe just a follow-up question on, on China. What, what would you say are the, the factor for this decelerating growth in China, which I think surprised a bit during the, the course of the summer? What would you say are the main trigger for that? Well, I think a number of factors. The first factor is that China got hit by COVID very hard indeed in the first quarter of 2020. Then the Chinese economy formed a base in the second quarter of 2020 with a very strong bounce in economic recovery in the second half of last year and early this year. So the Chinese economy, I think there is a natural slowdown after that very major bounce after the, you know, the shock from COVID. So that's factor number one. Factor number two is that we've seen quite a major change in regulation in China. And that regulation, first of all, it affected the fintech sector. And the rationale for that was that the Chinese authorities, I think, were becoming very concerned about consumer lending in the fintech sector, and also the distribution of investment products and the regulation of those investment products in the fintech sector. So that was step one. And then we've seen you know, a number of other regulatory steps, You know, whether it is increased regulation on the insurance sector, on the gaming industry, on the educational sector. And you know, I think it is reasonably clear that whereas China has really tried to boost investment in areas such as artificial intelligence, such as computer hardware, you know, there are, it is going through a process of trying to rebalance the Chinese economy. And that's accepted that you know, growth is on a longer-term slowdown. Now, let's quantify that. Uh, that longer-term slowdown probably means 6% growth year-on-year year in the second half of uh, 2021. And next year, 2022, probably growth slowing to between 5% and 6%. And you know, that's fairly consistent with the forecasts that we are currently seeing from organizations you know, such as the World Bank and the IMF. So that regulatory factor, I think you know, certainly the Chinese authorities are trying to reduce the risk of sort of overheating or they're trying to protect consumers and investors in certain sectors. And certainly they're trying to put this rebalancing into the economy. And that does have a, a cost to economic growth in the near term. But I think if you assume Chinese growth between 5% to 6% next year, and longer term, you know, Chinese growth probably decelerating, you know, perhaps by 2024 to less than 4%. So, you know, China still remains a growth engine. It's just that the pace of growth inevitably is now moderating. Uh, maybe now moving on to geopolitical risk. Again, on, on China, uh, there is uh, an agenda in terms of foreign policy that sometimes can be a, a concern for, for investors. Has there been any uh, major news on that front during uh, the course of the summer? Well, clearly, you know, investor attention and you know, media attention has focused on developments in Afghanistan in, um, in August. Having said that, the impact of what has been you know, a major tragedy in Afghanistan has not really had any effect on uh, capital markets. You know, one can have a discussion um, about what it means for 
know, the role of America in the geopolitical landscape. And I think it's probably fair to say that it probably does have some sort of American power possibly will diminish given what has happened in, in Afghanistan. But having said that, I think China and Russia will be very cautious in terms of their dealing with Afghanistan. Russia, because it doesn't want any contagion effects from Afghanistan into the stans, such as Uzbekistan, Tajikistan, Turkmenistan. And, you know, likewise, China is very anxious to avoid any contagion effects. And, you know, it was still, you know, wants to make sure that it has political stability in Western China and there is no sort of overflow from uh, problems. Where I think there is probably a major problem for geopolitics following Afghanistan, clearly the neighbouring countries such as Pakistan and Iran are economically very stressed. And I think probably that stress or that pressure will increase, particularly with increased number of refugees. That probably puts more pressure on the Iranian government, the new government in Iran, to seek negotiations with the Americans over the nuclear accord. And obviously that nuclear accord is important for the oil market because if sanctions are reduced on Iran, then Iranian exports will increase potentially by 1.5 million barrels per day. And that, again, is one factor taking upward pressure off the oil price. For Europe, obviously, you know, there will be increased tension if there is a major flow of refugees into Europe. And we have seen uh, those tensions in, in the past. But I think overall, of the situation in Afghanistan, as we've seen so far, the impact on global capital markets is going to be fairly minor. Um, where there has been geopolitical tension, and which has been somewhat masked by developments in, in Afghanistan, is obviously the relationship between the US, the UK, the European Union, and China. And you know, there are a number of tension points there. And arguably, that has been a factor discouraging foreign investment into China and a factor in the underperformance, which I talked about earlier, in the Chinese equity markets. Having said that, Chinese equity markets are now looking reasonably undervalued. Uh, and actually, I think an interesting question for the next three to four months, and certainly as we come to an end of 2021, is whether there is now further downside risk in Chinese equity markets. My own view is that the downside risks are now fairly minor. And I think probably the shock from increased regulation is now behind us. Geopolitical tensions, I think, with China should now ease off. Plus, we you know a number of problems in the Chinese corporate bond market are, I think, being gradually resolved. So, you know, two issuers which have had to go through restructuring the state-sponsored um, asset management company, Huarong, and then the real estate development company, Evergrande, which is the most indebted company in China, they are going through restructurings, which so far appear to be reasonably successful and so far have not caused any damage to Chinese capital markets. So that's one risk factor, I think, being uh, being removed. And I think also, you know, that the wave that we have had an in increased regulation, which has had a negative impact on investment investor sentiment, probably that's not going to be extended much further. 
And Bob, what about uh, the German general election? It's usually something that we, we pay attention to. It seems that it's so far, I mean, it's I think a month from now, so it's, there's still a bit of time, but uh, I don't think it's been commented a lot by investors or... Um, yeah, what, what, what is your view on that? Is it going to be important for market participants? I think the answer is it is important. And the reason why it's important is, number one, obviously, Mrs. Merkel, after you know, most people would agree with the statement that her chancellorship of Germany has overall been very successful. But obviously now Mrs. Merkel goes into a form of retirement and steps down. I also think there, it's, it's worth noting there is a very good electoral model uh, produced by The Economist, which is trying to work out what the outcome uh, of the election will be. And at the moment, that model says that the outcome is very uncertain. What we do know is that the campaign by the Greens, frankly, has not been successful. I think most people would agree with that statement. And that's reflected in the opinion polls where the Greens have failed to break through 20% in the opinion polls, and they've been sort of stuck at 17 to 19%. Um, I think the second um, conclusion is that voters don't seem to be attracted to the CDU candidate, Mr. Lachey, but they are attracted to the SPD leader, Mr. Schultz, uh, who, of course, in the current coalition, um, is the finance minister. And the CDU and their Bavarian partners, the CSU, are you know, really struggling in the election campaign. And you know, the, uh, their opinion poll reading at the moment you know, is now just under that of the SPD. So the SPD under Schultz has been making quite good gains with the CDU, CSU under pressure. Other parties such as you know, the right-wing AFD and the left-wing Dailinka, frankly, you know, are not really making any progress whatsoever. So if you look at the potential for, you know, the outcome, number one, it's inevitable it's going to be a coalition again. Number two, for the first time for many decades, the CDU-CSU may not be included in that coalition. And there are a number of potential outcomes, but one outcome would be a coalition um, of the Social Democrats, the Greens and the Free Democrats. And you know, those three parties and the opinion polls at the moment actually would command over 50%. An alternative is that the CDU, CSU stay in power, but they would have to continue with a coalition, let's say, with the Greens or, or the SPD, or for that matter, you know, the Free Democrats as well. I think whatever the outcome, the new German government will continue to be very supportive and very pro the European Union, it will probably result in some shift in fiscal policy to a sort of more, I would say, on trend, easy fiscal policy. And there, Germany, you know, is strongly committed and needs to be strongly committed to investment in infrastructure, and most notably, alternative energies to address climate change. And one shouldn't forget that Germany needs to deal with its reliance on the uh, on the coal industry. So there's more work to be done there. So I think an easier fiscal policy, obviously, it may take time for a new coalition to form. And you know, that in turn, because of that uncertainty it creates amongst investors, could result in uh, more selling pressure on uh, the euro. So I think that, you know, it's not just a function of this different approach between the Fed and the ECB. I think German politics you know, could lead to uh, some further selling pressure on the uh, on the euro. And let's not forget that investors will start to think 
about the French elections next year, where, you know, we now the latest news is that we now have Michel Barnier has now said that he wants to be a candidate amongst many other candidates for uh, the leadership of the French Republican Party. So for the for the right wing French party. So I think, you know, again, that could be a period of uncertainty. And let's also not forget in Europe that although Mario Draghi, by any criteria, is proving a very successful premier in Italy, the longevity of his government is questionable. And, you know, one has to question whether, you know, the Draghi government in Italy will continue for another year or so. Thank you, Bob, for this uh, improvised question. I must say to listeners, uh, we, we haven't prepared this one, but clearly you, you were prepared, Bob, so congratulations. <laughs> I mean, I think it's uh, all the time we have uh, today. Thank you so much, Bob, for uh, the, the overview. And it seems that we've navigated this summer uh, without too many waves so far. Uh, well, yes, I think just one point to add is that historically, August has been a month when we've experienced a unprecedented number of market or economic or political shocks. And I know that August has not yet ended, but so far, so good is the message. (laughs) Thank you so much for your time. Thanks for listening. And we'll be speaking again at the end of next month. Okay, thank you. Thank you for listening. For more ICMA podcasts and further information on capital markets, please visit our website icmagroup.org.